This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, here with Professor Jeremy Siegel and Peter Malouk, the President of Creative Planning. Peter, uh, welcome to New Jersey. Thanks for coming into town and doing a first for us, recording a show live from the beach. That's yeah, <laughs> the best view I've ever had on a podcast. So th- thanks for having me. <laughs> um, I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of save investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree its affiliates. Tell us a little bit. I mean, creative planning... Uh, big in the headlines, a $40 billion RIA, one of the biggest wealth management firms. You get a lot of reward for the, the nation's top financial planning firms. Tell us, how did you come to Creative? So Creative Planning was actually one of the first um, firms in the country, first registered investment advisors, started in the early 80s by these three guys that also had an insurance company. And it was a small firm. It was kind of a side project for them. And uh, in 1998, uh, they became one of my clients where I would handle their legal and planning for some of their clients. Uh, and in 04, after having done that for many other advisors too, I wanted to have a firm that was independent, uh, managed money to clients in a tailored way, and was able to take care of other things I was doing for my clients, like legal and tax. I'm also an estate attorney. And he, had, he was ready to retire. And so I took over in 2004. At that time, they had a, a few dozen clients. And and uh, that's the, when we the rest started. is history. Yeah. Wisdom Tree. Yeah. yeah. 2004. Parallel timelines. That's yeah. right. First ETF was in 2016 to 2004 was the official launch of the yeah. company. So you're, you've been in business as long as, as we have. That's right. <laughs> and, so, and so your firm is one of the fastest growing firms. Mm-hmm. And how, what sort of, what's the, the, the secret behind all this growth? Well, I think it's like... It's like making a cake. There's a lot of different ingredients. You can't be missing one of the ingredients. Um, but I think that we were ahead of the curve on a lot of the trends in the industry. So uh, in 04, we had stopped. Uh, when I had taken over, it was duly registered, and we had removed that. Well, that's become something that's become more popular today. But back And then, duly registered for the people who are just listening in. It's an advisor that's a broker and an independent advisor at the same time. So we had, we had just gone pure independent. Um, I think second, we were we were buying ETFs when we had to explain what an ETF was to a client. Uh, I know that uh, about five years in, a couple reps of, of some ETF places told us we were the largest holder of their ETFs. And I know today that's still the case. But, I mean, we were ahead on, on that. We were passive uh, when active was very popular. Um, and we were doing financial planning before people were doing it. And, and it was a lot of things like that. So we had a very good jump start. And... I think the comprehensive nature of what we provide has been very helpful as well. 
So now Goldman Sachs made some news. Yeah. Um, one of your fellow firms, United Capital, got got acquired. Um, I mean, what does that say to you about the industry? Like, how do you think this is going to be a new trend? And and just what's what's the landscape for independent advisors going forward? Well, I think what you're seeing is you, know, you called us at the top of the the podcast a, a big uh, firm, but we're really I mean, very very tiny in the grand scheme of things. We manage about forty billion. You compare that to the custodians that are all multi-trillion. The brokerage houses are all multi-trillion. Um, and uh, you, you go to the independent world, we look big, but that's because the independent world's relatively new. We're actually very, very, very small. I mean, if you want, you're talking about hundreds of employees and $40 billion in assets. Uh, I think, you know, big, you've got to be you're probably double, tri- at least, tri- you know, double, triple where where we are today. And, that, and then at least you've got one one-thousandth of the market share, and, and you can say... Uh, you're a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. But what I think you're seeing is we now have about 10 firms or so that are $30 billion and up, $25 billion and up. And I think we're going to see some of those get bought by strategic buyers. Right now, a private equity firm buys into one and then sells out later uh, to another private equity firm. But they're getting big enough that you're seeing strategic firms interested. I don't think it, it's surprising. It's not surprising <clears throat> to me that Goldman Sachs bought a firm. Uh, it won't be surprising to me when a custodian... What do you think the economies of scale are that... To motivate that, I think. Unfortunately, uh, I think that you, you've got a couple of things. I mean, the, the fortunate part is, I think Goldman Sachs is probably saying, "Hey, we work with all these super rich people. We've got ACO, which is another RA they bought a long time ago, or that uh, works with executives, and now they're, they're going to have an RA that deals with people. You know, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to invest. And I don't know if they'll change the brand or not, or how that's going to work. But I think that would be an outlet for that. But the other component is. Um, that that Goldman Sachs has a lot of products, right? And I I think this is going to be an interesting dialogue the the wealth management industry is going to have, the independent space is going to have about what does independent mean? Um, to me, independent means that that you're a fiduciary, you're a registered investment advisor, and you're not selling your own products to the client. Um, I think that for other people, just if you're a fiduciary, that means you're independent. So I personally could never uh, take creative planning and imagine selling it to a brokerage house. But that's just my my personal view because I know someday the brokerage house's products are probably going to find their way into my client uh, portfolios one way or another. I know that Joe Duran, who I think very, very highly of, who is the was is running United Capital said, you know, look, that's he sees he sees that that's not going to happen and and yeah, I guess we'll, time will tell how that's going to play out. Let, let me put a question back to you. So you talk about the, the definition of independence being not using like your own products, but you're also, you let's say you're using a lot of passive, you're paying another asset manager yeah. a big amount of fees as the largest hold of their ETFs, where you might be able to manufacture that yourselves cheaper. I think the issue is once you can, well, I think first, I'm not, I don't think we can manufacture it cheaper. If you look at where a lot of ETFs are now, yeah, uh, I think they are where they are, not because of their construction, because of the investment in the, in, in the ETF itself. So ETF has so many assets, they can lower the incremental cost and maintain yeah. the same or greater profitability. We would never achieve that scale to be able to do that. And but you it, have the scale, frankly. Well, it would immediately put us at co- in conflict with our clients. So let's say that we have a small cap ETF, uh, but there's another small cap ETF that does what we want. Maybe we want small value uh, ETF. Uh, now we have the creative planning small value ETF. And you know, let's say Wisdom Tree lowers their fees uh, considerably below ours. 
now I'm going to go down the hall and fire all the people that are running the creative planning yeah. small value ETF, or am I going to find a way to justify uh, the small value ETF? I'd like to think that I would never do that, but um, I would. I'm not always going to be the owner, and I'm not always going to be the decision maker. It's almost impossible yeah. not to lose that independence. That's when, right. I that's think what it, you're saying. You're just it. immediately a doctor who who owns medication in the medicine cabinet, and the patient shouldn't be surprised if they get more of that medicine. Mm, right. Right. And so when you when you think about so you you still it's nice to be humble and say you're small and that you're still you have big aspirations I assume right. with so what's the growth strategy what how do you is it buying other firms getting people to join creative what's the story to a smaller independent who might want to join I mean our strategy to, to this point has been we're going to have the absolute best offering that any RIA can have we wake up every day and go are we offering the best that an an American uh, investor wants wants an independent advisor are we going to be the best one available to them and anytime we think we're failing in one of those areas we do we do our best uh to have the very best offering and then to have the very best people that's how we've gotten to where we are today now i've i've not been a fan of acquisitions because if you look at a billion dollar firm and it acquires three firms now it's three billion uh to me it's like a, a little baby tree and you go tack a bunch of heavy branches on it i mean the it doesn't feel right uh, at $40 billion, we do have the scale and the systems and the teams and the processes in place and a very strong culture that when we go at a $500 million firm, it doesn't change our culture. It, it doesn't, the whole firm doesn't bend to that new uh, firm. Uh, that new firm uh, is coming to us because they're going, hey, you know, 30,000 clients chose creative planning. That's not 30,000 clients that were acquired by creative planning, which if you look at all of our top 10 you know, independent wealth management firms, uh, to my knowledge, it's acquisitions, and so really, I think if, if you're a if you're a firm looking to sell, you look at creative planning and say, "Hey, these guys, clients want to go there. They didn't get to forty billion by just acquiring all these clients." So I feel now we've got that strong trunk that we are attractive to to firms, and uh, it's attractive to us to add acquisition as part of our strategy. But the goal is still organic growth as much as possible, and uh, we're going to supplement it with acquisitions. When you say organic growth, from you mean obviously the assets of your clients, but also new clients, yeah. new clients that come in through recommendations of the client base you That's have, right. rather than buying from the outside. That's exactly right. So you look at us, us year to date, we've probably had one and a half billion of just clients coming to Creative Planning, and we made one acquisition that had almost five hundred billion in assets, and I think that's a nice path for us to increase our growth rate and our national presence um, without you know, changing the, the culture that we've built. And what's the sort of top three reasons people come? Like what when when they're choosing you over one of these other independents or a warehouse, I mean, why, why are they coming to you? I think there are a lot of reasons. I think one, they like um, the breadth and depth of services. You know, so there are a lot of firms that say, oh, we, you know, we, we manage money. Well, we have 50 traders. We have a full options team. We have an alternative investments team. We have a fixed income team. We are dedicated uh, to managing the money uh, towards the client's needs uh, with specialists. You know, a lot of firms our size are outsourcing those things, uh, and that becomes a problem, or they're putting everybody in one of 40 or you know, four or 40 models and they hit a button and trade everybody at the same time. You know, we're not, that's not the way we're managing money at creative. Uh, I think that's a very big part of it. I think the other big part of it is they want to be with an independent firm, but they want to feel safe. So they look at a brokerage house, 
billions of dollars, uh, uh, trillions of dollars. They feel safe, but they don't like the conflict. They come to the independent world. Firms have hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't maybe have that same sense of security, um, but there's no conflict. And creative is giving them the best of, of both worlds. I think that's why our growth has, uh, has accelerated of late. And I, I think they love that we don't sell our own, our own products. It's a big part of it. Let me, let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Peter Maluk uh, of Creative Planning about his firm and their, their growth profile. Professor, I interrupted. No, no, that's perfectly fine. Um, I, I was just wondering, so you do estate planning services, what insurance services, what, what is the panoply of services that you give them? So at first, I haven't gotten to say this yet. I mean, your book is, was uh, an inspiration to get into the industry, and I mean, it's just shrugging his shoulders because he hears that all the time but i mean it it's uh this is something that you know obviously could have been done over the phone but i'm honored to be here sitting with you uh, uh doing this live thank you um and when a client comes in they're doing money management financial planning with us but from there they might do legal work with us tax work with us uh, we will help them if they've retired early and and it's too soon for medicare we can help them with their health insurance you know some of these things i mean people in the industry know that you can't make money doing an individual health insurance policy that's not what it's about what it's about is solving the client's problems is it like a family office to some extent well that's what we you know we have on our wall you know barons uh, once did a story on us and the headline was family office for all and that's mm-hmm. uh, you know, prominently displayed on one of the floors in our building i think that's how we see ourselves so you don't have to be a multi-billionaire to be that's exactly get family right. office services. You're that's saying. exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Is taxes like a key element of that? When you're, are you doing everybody's taxes, most people's taxes? Well, we only do what the client wants, okay. right? So if the client comes in and says, "Look, I love my CPA. I'm perfectly happy," we say, "That's wonderful. Keep that relationship." You know, if your CPA is retired, or you've moved, or they've moved, or you want to consolidate, or for whatever reason, then we'll do the. We, we have the ability to do the taxes. We have the ability to do small business accounting, bill pay. So there's a lot of depth in each of these departments and what we're able to do. To do, you do that all in-house, too, or do you... All in-house. All in-house. Yeah. Building your own technology? Some of some of our own technology yeah. and some, some third-party. So where do you decide what, what, the, what that line is? Well, for us, if, if we can solve it externally, that's going to be our choice 100% of the time. We don't want to be in the technology development business. But if we think we can do something better or we think, uh, like, for example, with our planning software, there are all these things we wanted to do that were very, it, it took us more energy and time to deal with the vendor than to create our own from scratch. So we are almost done creating our own from scratch. So that's an example of when we would look to do something in-house. What, what are, do you find the concerns of investors today from your clients? What, what are they asking you about? What are they worried about? How do... How do you set up the portfolio or their financial structure to avoid some of the fears that they might have? You know, I think that the, the main fear they have is one they really can't articulate. And I think that they, they really feel like the world is different. And it's interesting because I look at investing and I, I would divide it in two. On the one hand, the part that's not different is the market goes down and it comes up. And we have corrections every year. We have bear markets every couple of years. It's normal. I, I don't lose any sleep wondering, is the S&P 500 going to come back? Uh, that part's the same. And I think they know that uh, in their minds and hearts. But something feels different to them. And it really is a different world because I'll, what's different now is things move much faster. Yeah. So, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, pre-internet, what a cycle was just longer. You know, now you could have like December, we had a full blown bear market and recovery in four weeks. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So it does feel different. And you know, the example I use with our team is, you know, you go to a, you used to go to a restaurant uh, when I was younger and you'd go, oh, this restaurant isn't very good. It might not last a few years. Well, if it doesn't, it's not very good now. It might not last a few months. <laughs> Though we, we punish the losers quicker. We reward the winners faster. And I think it's overwhelming. Information to, flows so much faster. That's, that's right. It. And, and so the market's become more efficient. I think just very alarming to people. And, and they can't put their finger on what's different. But that, I think that's what it is that creates a lot of anxiety for, for today's investor. Is it the changing demographics that they're just getting older so they can't take that much risk? And then did they did, in the fourth quarter were people panicking and you, you keep them in? Or how yeah. do you think about that? Well, I would tell you this is you know, not even a bit of a story. I don't, I can't recall one client calling me in December. So one of the advantages of really having a needs-based investment approach with a tremendous amount of education behind it and a plan is that our clients are informed. They do understand how the markets work. They do understand what they, what they own and why they own it, what they have in place to meet their needs if there's a prolonged bear market. So our, our clients, I don't worry about the, that's the people just coming right on board and they haven't learned all of that yet. Uh, those are the ones but that you we know. Really- it isn't so easy. You've done a good job. Peter Bernstein wrote uh, forward to my first edition of Stocks right. for a Long Run, and in that he describes when he started out, he explained exactly what he did to one of the clients. He said, "We're going to have a bear market. You got to stick with me. It comes back, and your returns." Are and the person nodded his head and nodded his head. And nodded. You know the story. Yeah. As soon as that bear market came, he came yeah. in a pass. Sell it. He said, "No, just a minute. We don't sell it. I'm just, you know." He, he just panicked and got. Yeah. I said, "You know, people can understand things intellectually. Doesn't mean they can deal with it emotionally." That's right. And, and, and uh, if you've done a really good job, if you can hold their hand at that point and say, listen, you know, stick with me. Yes. Uh, yep. and, uh, and they'll always appreciate it. If you they can. will. you got to get them through the first one. That's right. And uh, then, then they're more on board each yeah, time. Right. Yeah. I mean, you talked about using having an alternative team, and that's one of the things a lot of people are doing for volatility management. People have mm-hmm. low expected returns. Professor, there's more and more I hear. I was at a conference this week. Somebody thought the next 10 years was going to be 4% expected return. So I'll let Is you, that nominal, too? Yeah. Yeah. So let you 2% combat, real. I'll let yeah. you combat that. But what, what do you think about the alternatives? Well, I think I mean, I think this people are scared of the stock market, and so they're going to alternatives, and alternatives are investments in the same economy. It's just private right. versions instead of public. I mean, private equity, I mean, we talk about it like it's a separate asset class, and to me, it's really... It's the stock. It's the private version of the stock market. You're an right. equity owner. It's an equity asset class. And private lending, you can liken to bonds and private real estate to real estate. So you get a little bit of uh, a little bit of volat- volatility. Different. They behave a little bit differently. They have their own micro issues, but also you don't get reporting every day. Right. And I think a lot of people are just paying not to be alarmed on a daily basis. Um, and I think that's a, a big part of it is the psychology. But you you can reduce the volatility with a good combination. You can improve the expected return, but you really have it's very different than the public markets. I think here manager selection is a very big deal. Having access to best in classes is very important. And then being able to put up with the complexity of, of the extra K ones and maybe the delayed tax return and the illiquidity and the cash calls and all that stuff. For a lot of our clients, they say that's I'm putting that in the not worth worth it category. And some I think are really intrigued by it. And so we have that team and where it's appropriate we use it. You know, it's it's interesting. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, um, managed, I think, an endowment for uh, King's College. 
Um, and uh, when they were discussing what to put in it, uh, this person said, oh, I want to be in real estate. And he said, why? Well, because it's nowhere near as volatile right. as it's a stock market. And he said, you know, if I had to get you a quotation every day for this real estate, you'd realize how volatile it really is. Because yeah. if there's bad things going on, you're not going to get a quote for it. That's right. <laughs> you know, and but people think they're protected because they don't, you know, yeah. somehow it doesn't get reported. Yeah. You know, we had stock market like once a week. They say, oh, it's so much more stable. Right. <laughs> right. I, I remember in the 08, 09 crisis, we would update, you know, we always update the financial plans for clients. We'd come in and we'd go, okay, your, st- your U.S. stocks are down, your international stocks are down, yeah. your emerging market stocks are down. Uh, your, and then we'd go to their, their homes uh, or their rental properties. And they'd say, oh, it's the same, it's the same. It's yeah, the yeah, same. Not really. So, not really. <laughs> but, not you can, really. but you're allowed to you know, put your head in the sand. You know, REITs actually fell. You know, it's interesting because in the financial crisis, REITs held up well at the beginning and then just went down the tube disaster, at the end yeah. and actually had a bigger decline than the stock market itself. I mean, yes. it's just, again, you think that real estate was safe and then they realized, no. <laughs> right. That's right. I was at this uh, conference in Missouri this week and uh, Michael Mobison was talking about the private equity as, you know, there's a lot of, it was a lot of private equity people, a lot of venture capital people and they started off the conference with somebody attacking the big miss and, he, and there was a quote that I'll, I'll repeat, like 94% of institutional investors expected private equity to outperform the equity markets. Yeah. And this and this is a gentleman who's who doesn't you know, doesn't right. was attacking all these myths. And um and he talked about the endowments that are shifting, how much more they're adding to private equity, they're shifting out of fixed income, and it's because of this volatility well, reduction that they're not seeing the marks. Let, yes. me, let, me, let me give a little bit of a justification. I mean, there is good theory that a less liquid asset should give you a higher return right. than a more liquid asset. I mean, you know, I mean, the prime example, we see that in the government bond market, the underruns and the offerruns and, and everything like that. So there is a little bit of a premium. So in a way, if I have private equity or illegal venture capital or whatever there in the long run, but if you go through the math on it, it's not much of a difference. They think it's a big difference. Well, I think Maybe it's a half a percent, and if they need to sell it, they can't at that point. So in, in the public market, you know, the private market, if, and then again, and they can't get the diversification in the venture capital because there are, they can't, I mean, we can, we can get an index fund of, you know, 5,000 stocks everywhere, and they can't do that. Mm-hmm. So they're, they, they're buying a liquidity, which should give you a little bit of high return, but they're much less diversified, which is against them on a risk-return trade-off. Yeah, I think if you look at private equity, I mean, oftentimes they use the wrong benchmark, so they compare to the S&P 500 and so the small cap um, index. But you do get a liquidity premium. But I think if you segment it out based on uh, managers, I think you do see a different outcome if you use the top managers in that space. I mean, if you're using the top 20 private yeah. equity firms, there's 8,000 private equity yeah. funds. And I yeah. mean, it, there's a private equity fund on every corner, and some of them are run by two people, and they buy four local yeah. companies. And yeah. obviously, as a group, they're not going to outperform the S&P 500, but do I expect a sophisticated private equity firm that's buying 30 or 40 companies all over the country that's done one every year for 20 years to probably do a little bit better? I do. One of the biggest shams, people, you know, think it's a different asset class. Oh, you should have 5% in private equity, 10% like it is really an uncorrelated asset class yeah. with everything else. And if you, it isn't, but it sounds like, oh, yeah, you, uh, you know, then it pays to be a little fund and someone says you got to have at least 5% and then you can, if you can sell it to them, you know, that's, 
big bucks. So there's too many people in that. It's like hedge fund managers. There's too many people. There are good people in it, and there's a lot of people that are just there to collect the fees and are just going to unperform. So you you can do well, but you have the right manager, I think. Yes. That makes the difference. Yes. Um, maybe as, as we're getting closer to the end of our conversation, I, I think you described your client as like the millionaire next door. Is, yeah. is that an appropriate description? Like, how would you dis- say, you know, the people who are looking for, for creative? So we have our typical clients in our private wealth group, and they're the, the millionaire next door or the multimillionaire next door, we call them. We also have an emerging wealth practice for people that are that are below our half million dollar minimum, and we will work with them online and, and still provide all the ancillary Advice, and then we have an ultra fluent practice, which was one, which is the fastest growing part of our practice. Where maybe we have five, six billion plus in assets, where it's people whose net worth is in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions, and uh, that's become a very important part of our practice as well. And I think that group values the family office aspect more than the others, uh, and so it's been a very, it's been probably the most exciting part of our practice to watch unfold. Any uh, any sort of closing thoughts about creative, where you're going, the future of, of the business? Well, I mean, I, I, my hope is I, there's so many things in this business that we're in that we don't control. You know, what, what the stock market does, the bond market, recessions, uh, politics and all of those things. But so my focus has always been, can I get up in the morning and can my can our team get up in the morning and say, you know, the, everyone here is doing the best they can to make this the best place every day. And this is the best, if not one of the best places for an investor to be. And if, if we do that, I'm perfectly happy. I mean, that's the that's the rest of the stuff I can't control. Uh, and But I found that when you do that, the rest of the stuff tends to work out. So Very nice. The plan. And Professor, any comments on what he can expect from stocks and bonds uh, for the next well, 10 years? Well, I definitely think more than 2%. <laughs> I mean, 2% after inflation. Wow. I mean, you know, my models say it's going to be a little bit lower than our long run, which is 65 to 7, maybe a point lower. You know, I say, you know, 5, 5.5. But uh, that's still, I mean, astronomical compared to bonds, fixed right. income. The you know the equity risk premium is very generous right now. The cushion is is in there, and uh, yeah, so equity is still the place to be. I think. How do you see international versus U.S.? Well, you know, I know it's been a tough slog for international. Um, it all you know it always the best asset class is always the asset class that in retrospect has done the worst. <laughs> I mean, it's almost right. a mathematical truism, right? right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think emerging markets have taken a little hit now with the trade things going up, but I think they look not only fundamentally sound, but even I've, I've talked to technicians that say their, their charts are really beginning. They, they put in a bottom in December and that uh, there's a little bit of storm now, but... Uh, they they think that they're going to be good and um, and and uh, even Europe and Japan selling twenty thirty percent under the U S is 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 going to work out in the long run and I think you know I, I not only stocks for the long run but what stuff what Jeremy worked out early on and future for investors valuation trumps growth in the long run if you get it something cheap it doesn't have to grow fast um, for it to be the best investment in the long run. 
Well, as a firm that globally diversifies, I'll just say from your mouth to God's ears. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Peter, it's been a fun conversation. Thank you for coming to the Jersey Shore to record our Behind the Markets uh, discussion today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Thanks to Peter, Professor Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.